Chapter 20 of On. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joanna Schreck, Indianapolis. On by Hilaire Belloc, A Short Adventure. It was in Morocco. It was not yet day, and there was a little drizzling rain of that tiresome, feverish sort which you get in those outlandish countries south of Europe and cousin to the desert, only saved from being desert by this same evil rain which does sometimes fall on them. I woke and rose before my companions, and to their annoyance made them rise also, telling them that we needed every hour if we were to reach the sea before the next night. There was no road, not even such a track as one may see in the American West. Only here and there the sign that wheels had passed over the interminably dusty mud of the plain. We started the unfortunate motor car and jerked off northwards just as the sad, wet darkness was turning into a sad, wet day. Already the glimmering light showed us the forms of the land, but not yet any direction. And in that first half hour, as the light grew, we twice urged back, at the peril of our gears, from thick, boggy land to harder soil. Then, when it was full daylight, we could better determine our way. There was not a tree anywhere, not even on the distant mountains to the right. There was not a blade of grass. It was a wilderness where I could see barren slopes and peaks as much as fifty miles away. I have often wondered what the original Hebrew was for the term howling, which so admirably describes a wilderness in the Bible. Someday I will look it up, for whoever got that metaphor knew how to write. Also, these damnable empty spaces are not good for the soul. They isolate it beyond due measure. And so we went north. At nearly every dry stream bed, they came at intervals of some five miles, we had to cast about for the passage. In each we feared to remain, but each was at last successfully passed. Though I wondered how long the old machine would stand it. The car was, like most of these models of earlier years, very strongly built and it was patient and willing, but we were asking too much of it. It was about nine o'clock in the morning that we came at last to a true river, flowing between steep banks, perhaps thirty feet high or more, banks of crumbling earth and even there not a shrub, mere water colored as tawny as the waste itself and cutting through the waste without result. Here it was that the car gave up the ghost, crawling down the mass of mud upon the zigzag it reached, with many groans and grindings, the riverbed. It crossed the ford, making a noise like a saw, but when it was asked to breast the further bank, in one last gallant effort it sobbed out its life and died. Upon the height of the bank, against the sky, there stood a Spaniard, to whom, as is natural in that country, we spoke in French. He told us that nearby we should find a small town. We begged him in the meanwhile to fetch us many laborers and a stout rope. This he did. We tied the rope to the front axle in two places, leaving its ends free in the shape of two traces, which traces were taken each by a dozen men. And so, cumbrously, we were hauled to the plateau above. There, sure enough, we saw as filthy a little town as ever was permitted by demons to survive, but the sea was still very far away. What has always astonished me about these little towns of Islam is the apparent importance of their history compared with their present appearance. I know that it is the fashion to accept, literally enough, the stories of their past doings, and I know that I am going against the fashion in flatly refusing to accept those stories. I do not believe them. 
I do not believe them of Cordova, and I am fully prepared to disbelieve them of Granada itself. Certainly I disbelieve them of this little town which, as I have so abused it, and as, after all, it gave me hospitality, I will not dishonor by name. Its wretched crumbling plaster, its low hovels, the lump of mud which it called a mosque, the incredible accumulation of filth upon all sides, the air of stagnation and disease, the mere scale of the place, belied the exaggerations of the chronicles. And as I considered that I might have to spend there heaven knows how many days while messengers were fetching what might or might not bring to life the poor dead car, I could not bear the prospect. I therefore did something which I could not afford. I took aside the chief of my hauling gang of twenty-four and struck a bargain with him. I said to him, I cannot possibly reach the port which I intended to reach over this illimitable wet mass of dusty earth. It is a day's journey away, even if the car were in working order. Is there no other place on the seacoast nearer by where I could get some sort of vessel to take me to a human land? I care not what vessel it is, even though it be one of those vessels which they beach, which are open without deck and run under one lanteen sail, for I was not, at the nearest point, much more than a full hundred miles from Cadiz and the ports of Spain. He told me that there was one little third-rate port, if you could call it a port, and it was one day's walk away, or say five or six hours of marching. Then, at an enormous price, was it arranged, with a new team, that the car should be hauled by ropes, and hauled it was through the most incredible places, I sitting at the steering wheel, and the good moors hauling in two teams over sandy hillock and across awkward gillies, until, from a height, we saw suddenly a new road properly modeled, European, Christian, civilized, and beyond it the mixed roofs of Christendom and of Islam, beyond these again the sea, that sea to which the Mohammedan conqueror came more than a thousand years ago, and into which he rode his horse, saying, Lord God, were I not stopped by this your sea, I would ride farther and farther to the west, conquering all lands for your honor and that of your prophet. Once on this road, things grew easier. There were vehicles and there was life. I paid off my team with a heavy heart, adding, as courtesy, custom, and necessity demanded, a great deal to the agreed sum. Then I went down to the little town. It was a delightful surprise to find as pleasant a little town as ever the evil powers permitted to survive upon this earth. It was clean, it was even coquettish. It was neat, it climbed down the side of a steep hill, and below it a charming little harbor held a brig of sorts, very old, many native boats, large open boats used for fishing, and to my great joy, a steamer. It was a tramp steamer, and that of the smaller sort. It was the least of steamers, it was a Benjamin. But when I heard that it would try to start next day for Cadiz, I thought it as great a piece of luck as a reprieve, or a fortune or the sudden power to write a piece of verse, which one has been in travail of for years. The next day I paid my money and I went on board, and at noon, which was high tide, that steamer got across the bar. Not all steamers can cross the bar of this little port. Even as we went out, we saw the rusty skeleton of a French ship, which had gone to pieces in that same attempt a year before. It was a dreadful bar. I can only compare it to Appledore of Devon, and I doubt if there was any more water than there is over Appledore, perhaps less, 
But, as I have said, this steamer was the least of steamers, and drew as little as a steamer can if it is to take the high seas at all. There was little wind upon the Atlantic, but huge rollers coming in unbroken, one over the other, monotonously enormous, unceasing. And I said to myself, as she pointed her nose northward, It will be slow, it must be endured, but we are making for Christian land, and this night perhaps, for what is a hundred miles, I shall sleep in paradise, or at any rate, in Cadiz. But not at all. There happened a very strange thing indeed. Hardly had her nose been pointed north, and the bar perhaps half a mile behind us, and Africa, the horrible, the sterile, the bare, now no longer a place of weariness, but a coastline to be observed at my ease, when the man commanding this little ship dropped anchor and lit a pipe. I have always made it a rule in all my travels not to speak to anyone in command, though it is a rule I have found it very difficult to keep. The reason of this rule is that if you speak to any human being, you may agree with him or you may quarrel with him. Now, quarreling with an equal is entertaining or fatiguing, according to one's mood, but quarreling with one in command is always disastrous, unless one has great ambition. Therefore, I did not ask the captain why he did this thing, but I sat there on the little iron bridge and myself lit a pipe and indulged in that infantile trick for disappointing fate which is to imagine things worse than they are. I said to myself, we will probably remain anchored here for a day, or perhaps for two days, but within the week, I shall see Christian land. And I wondered whether the food in my bag, which was bread and a little cold pork and a bottle of wine, would last out, or whether I should have to depend on their food, and if so, what their food was like. So we lay under the hot sun, rising and falling with the enormous rolls, now in the trough and now in the crest, and regular as the swing of the great silver lamp in front of the tomb of St. James in Gallica, but on a much bigger scale of rise and fall. There came out of the north a little point of light, which was foam upon the bows of a boat. She came nearer. In an hour one could make out what she was, another tiny steamer, and in another hour she was fairly close at hand. I said to myself, This is what we are waiting for, But not at all. The little steamer passed us. The captain at my side muttered her name, but she was off to some southern port, perhaps Mogador. And so the hours went by, but at last, not too late in the afternoon, the true cause of our delay appeared. A boat set out from the harbor upon the ebb, rode over the great swell with ease and dexterity, just caught the moment to toss on board of us. As the sea lifted it, a gentleman extremely well-dressed, lean, courteous, and silent, He had preferred to take a comfortable luncheon on shore. Had I known that such a thing was possible, I would have done so too. His appearance was, for some reason, the signal. The moment he got on board, the ship woke up again. The anchor chain rattled, and she began her way. She made five knots, but not seven, at least that was my guess, and so all day long we wallowed, past Africa, and I saw upon my beam a little pirate town, and after that a great mountain. At sunset, there opened before me, for the first time in my life, the gates of Hercules, and marvelous they were to see thus from the west under the reddening light. They were very far away, the narrowest part of the straits one could barely see, tiny points upon the horizon, and the rock of Gibraltar one could not see at all, either because it was too far away or because it was hidden round a point of land. There are sights which, if one sees them for the first time in boyhood, 
one can still feel and are memories of heaven, great revelations which build up the mind for the rest of one's life. These sights seen in the decline of life still stir one, though there is a mournful contrast between their power now and their power then. I had not thought that any novel sight could move me as this, my first sight of the straits, moved me in the fall of that glaring African day. Here, said I to myself, is the entry to the antique world. This is the place out of which the first galleys came and knew the tide. Perhaps through this also, who knows, long ships from Atlantis once hauled in with oars, bringing arts and letters to those from whom we spring. Through these straits at this hour was running that convergence of European life which is their modern mark. There were six steamers in sight, and the light of others appeared as the darkness fell. After the emptiness of the Atlantic, I felt as though the Straits of Gibraltar were a highway, and I amused myself during all the first hours of the night in calculating the courses of the ships by the red and the green lights and their eclipse. There was no moon. The stars came out in the warm air, very brilliant and single, and we were nearly nose-on for the pointers of the bear. But Lord, how slow was that ship! The last light declined, and we put Trafalgar on the beam. It was nearly calm, and I, with a vague memory of Trafalgar and Cadiz being quite close together on the map, thought myself already in harbor. But not at all. It was hour after hour after hour. At last, long past midnight, and when I had hoped that first one light and then another might be the light of Cadiz, and had indeed long watched the light of Cadiz itself, which is white and flashing, and was still trying to make out far off to the west the glint of Spartel. I saw a sight which overjoyed me. A buoy with changing colored lights, such a thing as marks the entrance to a fairway. And along that fairway we went, going the way that the ships of Tyre had gone before us into the great landlocked harbor. The ships of Tyre at which the Hebrew prophet railed so ineffectually, for he said that Tyre would come to nothing. So it did, but it took much longer than he thought. We steered carefully between ships moored and took up a berth of which they knew and dropped anchor, and the journey was done. But I could not land till morning, and all the remaining hours of the night, after so strange a passage, I watched the bear going about his monotonous round and failing to take part in the baths of ocean, until at last it grew bright quickly over the eastern hills and Cadiz turned white and the sea took on its color. Then did I land in Christendom, and I was greeted by the rising of the sun. End of chapter 20. Recording by Joanna Schreck, Indianapolis.